going to invite you to open to Luke chapter 6. We're going to talk about self-examination this morning. Passage that Carmen read. Luke chapter 6, verse 37. Judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given you. All right, the theory is called selective awareness. The first time I saw this video, now has millions of hits on YouTube, was right at Ridgefield Kids Club on a Sunday night. And the video I saw is called The Invisible Gorilla. The Invisible Gorilla is a psychological study on selective awareness. And what the two professors from Harvard University put together here, and you could Google this sometime and watch the video, is about six people, some have black shirts and some have white shirts on, and the goal of the game here is, as a viewer, all you have to do is count how many times the, the, those with white shirts pass the basketball to each other. That's it. And I don't remember how many it is, eight or nine times. And I'm watching the video, and one, two, three, and all kind of circling around each other. And then at the video, it says, how many times did they pass the basketball? And it gives a number. Whatever the number was, you'd, you'd get it right. It's not really a trick question. And then it says, but did you see the gorilla? What do you mean did I see the gorilla? Rewind the video, and in the middle of the basketball being passed around, right where you could see this, somebody dressed up in a gorilla outfit comes on, stays on the screen for about four seconds and does this, and then walks off. The first time I saw that, I thought to myself, that's a different video. That's not the first video. So I went back and watched the original video, and sure enough, the gorilla is right there. It's called selective awareness. And what the psychologists tell us is, is that we see things that we tend to think are relevant and dismiss things that we think are irrelevant. We tend to see that which we want to see and what we're looking for and tend to ignore things that we don't really care about or don't care to know. And in this passage, Jesus tells his people and his disciples that people tend to practice moral self-awareness. We tend to see problems and flaws in other people and tend to ignore them in ourselves. It's kind of like there's the gorilla that walks through, but all we have is our eyes on the basketball and the people passing it around. So we look for flaws in others because we deem those to be relevant, and we ignore the flaws in ourselves. Now, it's not that we don't see any flaws in ourselves. We have a speck in our eye, Jesus says. We realize there's something in our, in our eye like that. But what it is, is we see our own problems in two or three decibels, and we tend to see other people's problems in 80, 90, or 100 decibels. What they do is really loud to us, and what we do is very soft and quiet. So verse 37, judge not, and you will not be judged. Verse 39, again, this is is selective awareness. There's the blind leading the blind. The whole point of the parable here is the blind don't realize they're blind. Verse 41 through 42, the speck in the eye versus the beam. It's an outrageous metaphor for selective awareness. That little speck is an issue, but the beam isn't. Jesus tells a story, or rather John tells a story about Jesus in Luke chapter 8. Remember the woman caught in adultery? She's trapped. She's caught by these men. They're trying to trick her and trick Jesus. They drag her before Jesus. They say, Jesus, we caught her in adultery. The law of Moses says stone her. Should we throw rocks at her? They're trying to trap Jesus. If Jesus says, yes, we should, we should oh, you know, stone her, of course, um, 
he, he's in a sense upholding the Old Testament law, but the Romans are going to come and immediately arrest Jesus. If he says, no, we shouldn't stone here, it's a trap in a different direction because now he seems to be dismissing the Old Testament law. So Jesus does the genius thing, as he always does. He leans down on the ground, he draws something in the dirt. We don't know what he drew in the dirt. Some people think he just kind of doodled with his finger. Some think he wrote a Bible verse from the Old Testament that talks about self-examination in the heart. Some people believe, many believe, that Jesus wrote the names of the women that those men had been with, showing them to be caught in adultery just like her, but they're overlooking their own sins and faults and just condemning her. Whatever he did, when he stands up, they start to walk away one at a time. And Jesus, of course, tells her to go and sin no more. What's the point there? He that is without sin cast a first stone. That doesn't mean you have to be sinless before you make a judgment. But that does mean you better enter some serious self-examination before you do. Jesus is telling his disciples to slow down, slow down, and address this moral self-awareness, selective awareness that we all have. And that's what a God-centered person will do. A God-centered person has enough grace in his heart from God to slow down, stop looking at all the faults in other people, and start to examine our own hearts a little bit. Make sure our heart is right before God before we start either condemning or judging or even thinking about doing those things with other people. There's a part where the, you know, the disciples, they, so many places they don't practice self-awareness, but there is one place where they actually do. And it's at the Last Supper when they learn that someone's going to betray Jesus, and every one of them says, Lord, is it I? Probably the only time in the scriptures the disciples practice you know, a good self-examination is in that passage where they honestly for the first time maybe see that they are capable of denying Jesus. And I think every one of us should be like that. Lord, Lord, is it I? It's not just other people that could forsake you. Is it I? David in the Psalm says, search me, O Lord. How about that? Search me? That's a brave prayer, but it's a godly prayer. Now, a couple thoughts real quick. As I mentioned before, self-examination is not the same as, as an unhealthy or morbid introspection. I can tell you as a pastor that many people that should be examining their hearts don't. And most of us that do, maybe I sometimes tell them to stop. Because you can get into a real morbid introspection if you don't have the right balance. That's the other extreme. And I just addressed that at the beginning of the sermon. I mean, Paul, in 1 Corinthians 4, he says, I don't even examine myself. What that means is I'm not going to get into this unhealthy, morbid introspection. Paul was all into self-examination. He even tells them in the same book, examine yourself, see if you're in the faith. But there's an unhealthy introspection you have to be careful about. And when you get into this introspection that just winds you, spirals you, where you don't seem to find the forgiveness of God, all you're doing is just looking at how much of a fail you are and all your faults, and you can never find the cross in that, that's a morbid introspection that Christians need to avoid. So there is a difference. Uh, and by the way, the church has always taught this. There's a good kind of healthy examination of self, and there's a morbid introspection we need to avoid. Martin Lloyd-Jones, the, the great Presbyterian pastor of the last century, said, what is the difference between examining oneself and becoming introspective? I suggest we cross the line from self-examination to introspection when, in a sense, we do nothing but examine ourselves. And when such examination becomes the main chief end in our lives, 
So we have to be careful. We want to have a balance here. Nevertheless, here are five or six reasons, depending on how much time we have, to practice self-examination, okay, as Christians, to examine our hearts and repent before the Lord. And the first one is this. We want to practice self-examination because we will face the same judgment that we pass on other people. So let this sink in. Verse 37, judge not and you will not be judged. Matthew goes even further. It says, judge not because you'll be judged by the same judgment that you judge other people. Condemn not, he says, and you will not be condemned. Forgive and you will be forgiven. Give and it shall be given to you. Now, when you take all four of these, by the way, remember I said last week Luke speaks in fours? Here's another example. It is 16 times in the book. You got another set of four here, right? Forgive not, condemn not, uh, rather judge not, condemn not, forgive not, and give. Again, four verbs here. Very common with Luke to use that kind of uh, rhetorical device. So when you take these four together, what does it mean when Jesus says judge not? Well, let's start here. First of all, it can't mean that Christians are not to judge at all. It just can't mean that. And we know that because there's many godly people in Scripture, first of all, that pass all kinds of judgments. And we're not just talking about Jesus and the apostles. Even Proverbs 7, 7, I saw among the simple, I noticed a young man. He seemed to have no sense. That sounds like a bit of a judgment. It's not a very kind one either, is it? Not only do we see godly people in Scripture passing judgments often, that we are actually commanded in places to make judgments. For example, Matthew 7, 15 says, beware of false prophets. You have to make a judgment. It's a false prophet. You've got to call it out. How about Galatians 6.1? Brethren, if a brother or sister is overtaken in a fall, you which are spiritual, restore such a one. You have to make a judgment. My brother or sister is overtaken in a fall, and Paul is commanding the other Christians to go and restore them. Some kind of judgment has got to be made. Sometimes the judgments are even harsher. Here's one out of Romans 16. Paul says, I urge you, brothers and sisters in Christ, mark those that cause divisions among you and avoid them. They deceive the heart of the simple. How's that? In other words, as a church, if we don't mark and avoid, I'm not even getting into the interpretation, we don't mark and avoid certain divisions in people, you know, theologically and morally, that means we are out of step with God's will. Now, here's one for you. If you went to Matthew's gospel, remember what he says? Judge not lest you be judged. You know what the next passage says? Don't give to dogs what is sacred. Don't cast your pearls before swine. What is that? That's a judgment. So on the one hand, Jesus says, don't judge. On the other hand, he says, you better judge if that's a dog. <laughs> you know? There's got to be a balance between the two. Jesus seems to be saying... Don't be this overly critical kind of person that moves without any self-examination. But on the other hand, don't be naive. Don't be hoodwinked theologically or morally or by false teachers. So we want to make sure we're, we're avoiding these two extremes. We don't want to be overly critical, but we don't want to be naive either. If we fail to make judgments at certain times and certain things, we are out of step with the will of God. What this means is, let's not be self-righteous, egotistical. Not holding people down in guilt rather than helping them find God. Not holding an action permanently against someone where they don't have a path to redemption. 
but making sure that we're not being critical in this regard. Uh, the overly critical idea. Anybody read Flannery O'Connor? One of her short stories, she has a, it's Revelation. She has Ruby Turpin, and she describes Ruby Turpin, smug, kind of heavy set. She enters a crowded room at a doctor's office, and Ruby is very self righteous. As soon as she walks in the room, she starts passing judgment on everybody there. <laughs> you know, that's how Flannery. Uh, and, then, and then later in the story, and Miss Turpin is saying, if there's one thing I am, it's grateful. When I think of all I could have been besides myself, and what all I got, a little of everything, and a good disposition besides, I feel like shouting, thank you, Jesus, for making everything the way it is. Boy, it could have been different. That's Miss Turpin just passing judgments on everybody. I'm so thankful I'm not like that person. Look at that person over there. What a fool. I don't want to be like them. We can be very overly critical. That's the idea here. Now, here's the main point that I think Jesus is saying. Judge not lest you be judged. We are judged by the same standard that we judge other people. Let this sink in. This one took a while for me to get my hands around years ago. I actually got my hands around this a little better when I went through Romans. Romans 2.1, Paul says the same thing. You therefore have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else. For at whatever point you judge another, you're condemning yourself. Because you pass judgment and do the same things. You know what Paul and Jesus are saying? They're saying you're going to be judged at least by the same standard that you judge other people. Now I'll tell you, there is an illustration by Francis Schaeffer that haunts me. Okay, here it is. Francis Schaeffer, maybe I've mentioned this to you. He's a, a, a pastor from America, but he, he ministered in Europe. He says, this idea, judge not lest you be judged, he says, imagine, he, you can, I'm going to date him here, he's from the 80s and 70s, that imagine a tape recorder. Remember, you could hit record, I think you hit record and play together, you know, and it would record. He said, imagine, just for the last 10 years, not your whole life, but just for the last 10 years, imagine there's a tape recorder around your neck. And every time you pass a moral judgment on anyone or anything, it hits record. Now, take that tape recorder on the day you stand before the Lord and just hit play. And ask yourself the question, don't ask yourself if you've lived up to God's moral standard. Do you even live up to your own moral standard? That haunts me, I'll be honest. I can't stand that guy. He's a know-it-all. So-and-so is such a terrible parent. Look at how they raise their kids. (laughs) My spouse spends so much on this, she's going to bring us to ruin. This church isn't nice to people. It doesn't care. I mean, think about all the judgments that people pass all the time. Francis Schaeffer's being gracious. He's giving you 10 years. What if I give you 10 days? Just in the last 10 days, how many moral standards have you put on other people that if they were turned around and put on you, you wouldn't even pass your own moral standard? Anytime I have a person say to me, I don't think it's right that God judges me by his own moral standard, as I just turn around and usually say, can you even pass your own moral standard? Because I imagine most of us cannot. None of us can. Judge not, lest you be judged. For the same judgment you pass on other people, Jesus says, that's the judgment that's going to come upon you. I don't know of a better picture of this in the Bible than the story of David and Nathan. You know, David David uh, commits adultery with a man, uh, with, with, a, with a woman, and then he, then he kills the husband. And David is walking through life like nothing happened. 
This is a secret sin in David's life that very few people know about adultery and murder. And of course, Nathan the prophet, it's revealed to Nathan, who's actually a friend of David's. And Nathan comes and he tells David a little story. He says, David, there's two people in your kingdom. There's one that's really rich and one that's really poor. And the one that's really rich, they have all kinds of flocks of sheep and cows, you know, whatever they would have there in the Middle East. Very rich people. And then there's this very poor man. He has one little lamb, and he loves that lamb. He even lets that lamb drink from his own cup. And one day, a visitor is coming through town, and they have to make a sacrifice, or rather, uh, they take an animal, and they often sacrifice it, and they'd always, you know, present it to the visitor uh, as hospitality. And so in the parable here, the rich man doesn't take his own lamb. He takes the only lamb from that poor person over there. And David is hearing this story. And what's happening in David's heart? His blood is boiling. How dare the rich man exploit the poor man like that? And David cries out, as sure as the Lord lives, that man deserves to die. Remember what Nathan did? David? You are the man. (laughs) And David immediately realized what Nathan was doing with that parable. And David fell down, of course, and repented. We have Psalm 50 from that, where David cries out for forgiveness. Jesus says, the same judgment you pass on others will be used against you. By the way, here's here's the other side of it. And this is beautiful. Verse 38. Give, and it will be given you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be poured out on your lap. Now, what does that mean? That doesn't make any sense in the modern world, does it? What that means, that's a picture of a transaction in a marketplace, probably with corn, where you'd go to the marketplace and people are either very generous with you or they're ungenerous with you. If they're ungenerous, they're going to just scoop up the corn and they're going to give you as little as possible, you know? But if they're generous in that transaction, if they're a giving person, they're going to scoop it up about three-quarters full, and they're going to tap it like this. Get the picture? And, all, and it's going to shake down a little bit. Then they're going to put a little more in and push down and fill it up a little more. And if they're really generous, they're going to go here. They're going to grab the toga and pull the toga and lay it here and put another scoop on top. This is the five guys thing, you know, right in the bag with the fries, right? Really, really picture a generosity here with the corn. That's the idea. And Jesus says, when we are generous like this, we can expect divine generosity. We're not buying God's favor, but this is the mark of the redeemed people. And by the way, the word give here, I have no doubt there's some financial implications. I think it's talking about being generous in your judgments of other people. That's the context. Where we're not hypercritical, but we're as generous as we can possibly be with people. We're generous, we're understanding, we're going to take people in the best possible sense. This is antithetical to what the world does. What the world does is they take everybody's words in the worst possible light. Christian people ought to be generous. We're not looking to judge people and whack-a-mole them, right? We ought to take them in the best possible light with as much charity as we can. So the very first reason here we practice self-examination is the same judgment will boomerang and come back on us. Number two, practice self, uh, self-examination because of the, just the potential damage we can do to other people. Verse 39, he tells him a parable. Can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit? A disciple is not above his master, but everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. Uh, so the idea here is, is, is blindness, right? Blindness. There's a couple of different ways to take blindness here. 
but the, 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 let me give you the picture first. So we have, we have the blind following the blind. And because the leader doesn't know where they're going, they could fall into a pit. Now, this is not the regular word for pit. This is a word that means canyon or cave. It's a massive pit, like falling into the Grand Canyon, where your life is in jeopardy, to say the least. That's the idea in this passage. The blind is leading the blind, and because the leader doesn't know where they're going, they can fall off into the pit. Now, in church history, this has been taken two different ways, both of which are true. Number one, is Jesus cautioning his disciples to, be, to follow people that aren't blind? Is this a caution to the father? In other words, is Jesus looking at us as his church saying, don't follow the blind. Don't follow people that don't know where they're going. It's very possible that's happening. And if that's the case, we can read here, for example, blind people are more than willing to lead the church, so we've got to be careful. Blind people rarely see themselves as blind. And what they say is going to make some sense or you wouldn't follow them to begin with. So it's possible Jesus is warning us, don't follow blind teachers. I think it's more likely that he's telling us not to be the blind teacher, <laughs> Because people follow us, and we want to make sure we're grounded in our relationship with God, practicing self-examination so we're not blind, lest we take somebody down the wrong road. Both of those are true. Is it a warning to the follower or a warning to the leader? Probably both. I think the emphasis is on leader here. I used to have a running partner in South Carolina. He's a pastor that lived in town. We'd run once, maybe twice a week, and uh, a couple places that we had to run where cars would come kind of close to you. And there's a couple times we'd be talking. And, I, you know, when he's in front of me or I'm in front of him, you're just watching the person in front of you, following wherever they go, you know. You're not thinking. And there was one occasion where, where I'm following him and, and, I'm just, and, and this car just comes. I mean, it must have come within two inches of us at 45 miles an hour, terrified both of us. And, and to me, whenever I think of this verse, that's what I think of. That if you're not looking where you're going, people are following you. And not only do you have the potential to get hurt spiritually, but they have the potential to get hurt spiritually. So Jesus seems to be saying to his disciples, practice self-examination. Don't be the blind guide because you are going to lead the church and you're going to lead people. And you want to make sure you're leading them in the right direction. Now, I'll give you an illustration of this if you want. What does it mean for the blind to follow the blind? There's a passage in the Old Testament. I want to give you an illustration with Abraham and Sarah. Uh, rather, Abraham and Isaac. Abraham is the father. Isaac is the son. They commit the same sin. You want to hear it? All right, listen to this. Abraham said of his wife, Sarah. So Abraham here in the passage, this is Genesis 20. He's, he's got a really pretty wife. And he's afraid the king is going to kill him and take the wife for himself. So Abraham said, she's my sister. So he lies, half lie, but it's a lie, in order to protect his own skin. Genesis 26, Isaac is his son. And this is what the passage says. When the men of the place asked him about his wife, he said, she is my sister, for he feared to say my wife, thinking they will kill me because of her. Abraham says, I'm afraid for my life. She's my sister. Isaac does the same thing. Do you know people that don't believe the Bible believe this is the same story that the author just mixed up? That completely misses the point. The point is, the son is committing the exact same sin as the father. 
And that's the point Genesis is trying to make. In other words, there are patterns in Abraham's life that are going unchecked. There's not a lot of self-examination going on. And who's following him? His son. And he commits the exact same thing. You see this with Solomon. Solomon, who does a lot of things well, but he's the one that brings in all kinds of pagan influences into his life. And, of course, those that follow Solomon end up doing the same thing. We've got to practice self-examination because we want to be the kind of leaders. And somebody's following someone all the time, the kind of leaders that are leading people to Christ, not leading people into the pit. All right, number three, so we continue. Practice self-examination because a lack of self-examination can lead to self-righteousness. It can lead to self-righteousness. I don't know if you ever heard of the Dunning-Kruger effect. This, this one's worth reading about. The Dunning-Kruger effect is hilarious. Uh, it's two professors from Cornell. They also did a study, and it's about cognitive biases. It, it basically says that there's a certain segment of people, they're, they're low-skilled, and they grossly overestimate their ability, grossly overestimate their ability. Everybody does this, but there's a certain skill. And the study actually comes from someone named MacArthur, MacArthur Wheeler, MacArthur Wheeler was a crook. He was a criminal. And he, he tried to, I think he tried to rob two convenience stores. You know how he did it? He put lemon juice on his face because he thought it would turn him invisible. All right? And when Dunning, when Dunning and Kruger read that, they thought there's a level of incompetence here that demands study. You know? And so, so they started studying highly incompetent people. And they came to realize that, the, you know, that's what they call a Dunning-Kruger effect, that, that sometimes we really overestimate our abilities, you know, really overestimate our abilities. And I read this the other day, 94% of university professors think they're better than their colleagues. 94%. 25% of college students believe they're in the top 1% of ability to get along with other people. 70% of college students think they're above average in leadership. Only 2% think they're below average. We, my point here is, Dunning-Kruger is right. We all do this. We tend to overestimate our own abilities and tend to underestimate other people's. And we're all prone to that. You know, you watch these shows. I don't know, America's Got Talent or something. I don't really watch these, but they're on sometimes. And my, one of my kids watches it. And th- sometimes there's performances, and you're like, that's got to be a joke. You know, I mean, they, but some people are very sincere. I'm just pointing out, this is the Dunning-Kruger effect. <laughs> it's the Dunning-Kruger effect. Uh, so, so we, we, we are just prone to miscalculation and implied in this passage is this spiritual Dunning-Kruger effect, right? Because the Lord says, uh, you know, why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but don't notice the log in your own eye? So, so somebody looks out, they have a beam. This is a beam from a house. These are two construction terms. One is a beam, one of the main beams in a house that would hold it up. That beam is in your eye. It's not outrageous illustration. And someone else has a piece of sawdust in their eye. And all the way across the room, you're going, you got some dust in your eye, right? And meanwhile, there's this beam that's coming out of our eye. This is a massive miscalculation, massive miscalculation. I read a story about Two-Gun Crowley, uh, one of the, 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 the New York gangster from years ago. And there was a point where he uh, murdered uh, a police officer that pulled him over. He even, after the guy was dead, he even took his gun and shot him again. He had a bloodstained note when they found him. 
And on that bloodstained note, when he was arrested, it said something like, underneath this coat there is a warm heart, a kind one that would not harm anyone. It's a guy that just shot up a bunch of people, you know, with, with, ma- with malice for none. And there he is in Sing Sing prison about to be executed, and his last words were, this is what I get for defending myself. That's a, that's a beam in your eye trying to pull the sawdust out of everybody else's. Not, we're not always that extreme, but we are very quick to miscalculate where we fail to see the beam in our own eye and we see the speck in other people's eyes. So judgment always has to begin with self. Now, I quoted half of this verse earlier. Let me finish the verse. Brothers, sisters, if someone is overtaken in a fault, you which are spiritual, restore them in a spirit of meekness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. That's the last part of the verse. Considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. Galatians 6.1. In other words, if we're going to go and correct someone, if we're going to think that in that direction, consider ourselves first, lest we be tempted. I want to make sure that we're practicing self-examination. What David said in Psalm 51, Create in me a clean heart, renew a right spirit within me, restore to me the joy of my salvation, then I will teach transgressors the way. What David didn't say is, I'm going to start teaching people all about God. He said, Lord, clean my heart. Search me, O God. Point out the flaws. I will repent of Then I will start teaching people. Is an order here, a self-examination. Number four is this, last two real quick. We want to practice self-examination because the heart is the source of the actions. The heart, verse 44 and 45. For no, uh, for, uh, 44, for, uh, excuse me, for each tree is known by its own fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. The good person, out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of the evil treasure produces evil, for out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks. So this tells us not only why, but how we should examine ourselves. That we should look at our lives like a dashboard on a car. And this is actually an illustration that comes right to mind for me, because two weeks ago my van broke down. And when my van broke down, it all started with a dashboard. There's these lights that start flashing up, And since I'm a really good mechanic, I thought, I probably got like 50 more miles before this thing breaks down. And in a matter of a mile and a half, I was on the side of the road calling AAA. That that dashboard, is it tells us that something's wrong with the car. You, You don't take tape and put it over the dashboard. You don't take the lights out of the dashboard. The dashboard is an indicator that something's wrong in the car. And when things are coming out of our mouths, we're passing judgment on people, we're really sharp with people. We say this to our spouse. We're screaming at our kids. You know, a lot of times, that's an indication of what's going on inside the heart. So think of it this way. Why, you know, it, it, I mean, if, if, if you have a dog and a squirrel runs through the, dog, the backyard and your dog starts barking and you say, well, why did the dog bark? You say, because the squirrel went through the yard. Maybe. Why did the dog bark? How about because he's a dog? Why did the lion roar? Because he's a lion. See, take a bottle of water that was up here. If I had a bottle of water in my hand and I, and I shook the bottle like this and water went all over the stage. And I asked you, why, why did water come out of the bottle? 
The, the most obvious answer, well, you shook the bottle. Yeah, but why did water come out of the bottle? Why did a bark come out of the dog? Why did the roar come out of the lion? Water came out of the bottle because water was in the bottle. Why did those violent words come out of the mouth? Why did the cutting words come out of the mouth? Why did the lack of forgiveness, the anger, or maybe the bitterness that's in our hearts and the judgmentalism? You say, that's because they ticked me off. Well, yeah, that's like the squirrel running through the yard. But water came out of the bottle because water was in the bottle. And the angry words come out of the mouth because the angry words are in a heart to begin with. And Jesus is saying, don't just focus on the fruit that's on the tree. You have to think about the root. And you've got to think about what kind of fruit a tree it is. And so it is with us as God's people. As we examine ourselves, when we start to see things that are out of step with who God is and what he wants from us, it's not enough just to deal with those things trivially. We want to try to get to the heart of the matter. Realize there's a brokenness in our relationship with God that is causing us to do these things. Instead of just putting band-aids on things, go deep under the hood of the car instead of just noticing the dashboard lights. Self-examination. Self-examination. Keep your heart with all diligence, for out of it flows the issues of life. Proverbs 4. Last thought. We should practice self-examination because hearing instruction is not good enough. (laughs) And that's what our text teaches us in the last passage, 46 through 47. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? So they're listening to Jesus. They're saying, Lord, Lord, but they're not following anything he's saying. Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I'll tell you what he's like. He's like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation of the rock. And when the flood arose, the streams broke against the house, and it could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who hears and does not do them It's like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. And when a stream broke against it, immediately it fell, and the ruin of that house was great. Now, this is the picture. In the ancient world, you've got to remember, there's not a lot of nice grass and gravel and dirt. You know, you're talking about mud. It's either mud or it's really hard ground. It's going to be one or the other. You ever walk onto a baseball field, uh, onto the dirt after it's rained for a couple days, and it's this really hard, dry you're like, better not slide on this kind of dirt, you know. That's the kind of dirt that you would see walking around, you know, in the east. And so what you have to do is you have to know that when the, when the rain comes, that's going to turn to mud. So you have to have enough sense to, and it takes a lot of work, dig through those layers of really hard dirt to get way down and build that foundation. And so you have two kinds of people. You have those that are willing to do the hard work, get all the way to the heart of the matter, dig way down and make a foundation on the bedrock and not just on top of the, 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 the hardened clay there. But those that, that make their house on the hardened clay, Luke says what happens is when a flood comes, it all turns to this chocolate pudding. That's what one commentator who lives over there says. It all, it's like chocolate pudding. And all of a sudden you get a house tipping and starting to go down a little bit. What looked like a solid foundation is not a solid foundation when the, when, the, when the rain comes. And so that's the picture we have here. Jesus says, those that hear me and obey me, they're like those that dig deep and lay it right against the bedrock. Those that hear but don't obey, 
They're just building on sinking sand. They're just building on what's going to be chocolate pudding in the future. We get no credit for just showing up. I was thinking about this idea that we listen to instruction but don't take much action with it. Every parent right now knows what I'm talking about because your kid, if they've been in online school, you've seen it. (laughs) Where your kid is in math class and they have math up here and they have Netflix down here, (laughs) you know, and Pac-Man or whatever over you dating myself, Miss Pac-Man over here. And then you say, do you go to school today? And they're like, I was there every minute, you know. (laughs) Meanwhile, they've watched, you know, four seasons of Poldark or something like that. What they've done is they're giving themselves credit for just showing up and listening, but not necessarily following through on the work. The same can be true of God's people. We hear the word of God, but we're not acting on the word of God. And we hear the scriptures, but we have no real intention to follow Christ. Self-examination means I'm going to listen to the words of Jesus, and then I'm going to ask myself the hard questions. Am I really obeying these? Am I really carrying these out? Or do I think I'm just going to get credit for listening? Because many say, Lord, Lord, without intention of doing. We want to be the kind of church that is building on the bedrock, not that crusty foundation on top. Father, thank you for your grace today and your love and your concern for us. Bless us, your people. Help us to walk with you. I pray that you'd help us to be a people that practice self-examination. We're going to need your help to do this. So give us the strength to be able to. Give us the insight. Help us not to be moved with this selective awareness. But in all things, hearing the word of God, obeying the word of God, through the power of your spirit, in Jesus' name, amen.